Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. And the message entitled, The Ministry of the Gospel. And this is part 2. We have seen that Paul had been uh, directed by the Holy Spirit to delay his prayer in order to reveal important information about his own person as the messenger of the gospel in chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Then Paul dealt with the ministry of the gospel, focusing on the content of the gospel from verse 8 to 13 now. And um, verse 2 through 13, remember, is all one long sentence in the Greek. But we only looked at half of this last portion of the ministry. We noted that the ministry of the gospel for Paul was characterized by the following in verse 8 to 10. The evangelizing of the Gentiles in verse 8. The unveiling of oneness to Jew and Gentile in verse 9. Because that was a whole different message. Because it's now the church. It's not longer just Israel alone. And the enlightening of the angels about the oneness of Jew and Gentile in verse 10. The angels were seeing it for the very first time. They don't know the future. So they were blown away. The wisdom of God, how he did this, how he put it all together. Such animosity, such hostility between them. And yet now they were looking down upon the love, the grace, the compassion, the extension to Jew and Gentile, both a new work of God, the church age. So next we are to we are told the ministry of the gospel for Paul is characterized by three more things, and this is verse eleven through thirteen. Let me read. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And so the ministry of the gospel of Paul in part two here is characterized by the following. First, the perfect timing of the plan of God for salvation. Verse 11. Perfect timing. Second, the personal benefit in the plan of God for salvation in verse 12. And thirdly, the proper perspective about the plan of salvation. Um, through God, and we'll see this, how it all ties together, even as Paul himself here, being imprisoned, he's going to make this very, very evident. Let's begin here with the perfect timing of the plan of God for salvation. Look at verse 11. The Apostle Paul declared that the particular purpose of God, the Father, are all the sum total of his eternal purpose. Listen to his words. According to the eternal purpose purpose. Paul has been dealing with one of the specific purposes of the Father, the unity and the oneness of Jew and Gentile. That's what he's been dealing in the previous verses. In fact, um, all of this chapter so far and towards the end of the last one. Understanding God distinguished between the Jew and Gentile from the Old Testament. Abraham was called out by God, as you know, to make a nation of him in Genesis 12, 1 and 2. And God was the father of the nation as he delivered them from Egypt after 430 years. Um, Exodus 12, 40, and then Galatians three seventeen confirms the time. But also understanding that God the Father in the Old Testament had included the Gentiles through Israel. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 says, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. One of the eternal purposes of God the Father was to make known his manifold wisdom to the angels by way of the church in the unity and oneness of Jew and Gentile. And as I said, they were seeing for the first time. Jew and Gentile, their identity as individuals was insignificant now. Both had to be trusting the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This was a common ground. One body, one bride, one church. His witness to the world. Now Paul is saying, according to the eternal purpose, notice, he's speaking about the general purpose in the eternal plan of salvation. The word purpose uh, means a setting before a thing, and classical writers used it to, uh, in a deliberate plan or schemes. In other words, a planning and a plotting. 
Um, you make a, an outline. That's what you're projecting to speak about. You make a blueprint. That's the house you're, you're planning on building. And this is part of God's plan that he had for salvation. Now, the absence of the article here stresses the quality of the word and makes the quality very definite. It is God's purpose, not man's. This isn't about Paul. This is about God revealing the purpose of God. This took place prior to the time to be revealed through the ages of time. Romans 16, 15, we saw it in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, 3, 5, 9, and 1 Peter 1, 2 tells us also. So this was declared by God prior to time, before the creation of time, but worked out through the ages of time, one step at a time. The word is used for the nation Israel according to election in Romans 9.11, but not individual salvation. Often you will hear Calvinists teach you and tell you that Romans 9 speaks about predestination of individual salvation. Correct them. The context of Romans 9 is national. It's Esau and Jacob. Edom, Israel. Not individual. It's the nations. He's quoting Malachi. Malachi is quoting Genesis 25. So the context is not individual salvation in Romans 9. It's national election. Jacob or Israel over Esau, Edom. That's the context. So it's completely violating the context completely. It's nothing but a text for a pretext to teach what you want to teach. Now... The particular purposes are all stepping stones to reach and bring to pass the ultimate goal, salvation. The plan of salvation in the process of time involves people and nations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, John the Baptist, Herod, Pilate, the Twelve, Paul, Felix, Festus, Herod, even Caesar. It's all working out completely through the ages. The empires were Egypt, Israel, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And Rome brought about the New Testament period, the Age of Grace. Now, each person and empire was a link in the chain of events moving towards the eternal purpose of God to reveal the wisdom of God in the unity and oneness of Jew and Gentile. No one had any idea. We already saw that Peter tells us that the prophets of old sometimes prophesied and wrote down their scriptures. And they, and they looked at it and they read it and they knew who it was for. And they declared it. But at other times they wrote it down and they said, I don't know who it's for. So God is the one that gives understanding for his word. And sometimes they had no idea whatsoever. In fact, we are told that they were speaking about us in the future in many of those passages. Listen to Titus 1, 2, and 3. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the eternal, uh, the counsel of his will. I'm sorry, that's Ephesians 1, 11. And then in Titus 1, Verse 2 and 3 says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So in Ephesians 1.11, it's the eternal counsel of God. Here now it's before time began. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandments of God our Savior. So God declared it before time began, and then through time he began to work it out through Abraham, David, everything else. And then when the New Testament came, the preaching of the gospel came forth. John the Baptist opened up by saying, repent, the kingdom of God's at hand. Malachi closes the Old Testament with repent in view of the Lord's coming. 400 years between them, the years of Silas. Now, the eternal purposes, <clears throat> or the purpose of God, the plan of salvation cannot be hindered. It cannot be altered. Now, this does not mean sinners or are robots with no capacity of choice, nor are they 
absolve the personal responsibility for their free will. This simply means that God from eternity has purposed his plan of salvation, and it will be fulfilled as each person hears and responds either by accepting or rejecting the gospel. We've seen that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. Um, if people have no choice in the gospel, what's the use preaching? If people can reject the gospel and it's predestined, then why pray? So you have to be careful how you approach predestination. Predestination never alters or nullifies human choice, ever. You don't have to get real theological. Go back to the garden. <clears throat> God told Adam and Eve, of all the trees, you can eat. Of that one tree, you can't eat. If you eat of all of them, you'll be fine. If you eat of the one, you're in trouble. He told Israel, choose you this day. I put before you life and death. God said in Isaiah, five years, my vineyard. I hedged it around. I watered it. I fertilized it. I expected a good bunch of grapes. And what I get? Sour grapes. God says, what else could I have done? Which means he didn't predestine it. They chose to walk away from him. Simple. And the prophecy says, listen, it wasn't even in my mind that you would ever offer your children to Molech. Now, if you believe in predestination for everything then you have to say that God did that. God says, I didn't think about that. That wasn't in my mind. So there's human responsibility. Paul is um, concerned with bringing the historical reality to pass here. The word accomplish... <clears throat> means to render, acquire, to provide for, or execute for the effective benefit of Jew and Gentile sinners. That which was decreed and declared is being, being brought into reality, historical reality here. The word appears 900 times in the epistle and translated like this, making, fulfilling, has made, purpose, to do, cause, does, do. In other words, to make it a reality. To bring it to pass. To make it prophetically fulfilled, if you will. Paul is saying that the plan and goal of salvation is brought to pass, look real carefully, by Jesus. See, everything points to Jesus. Everything in the Bible. Never will you read the Bible and will it point you to Allah, Buddha, Krishna, Daffy Duck. Nobody. Only Jesus Christ. He's the red thread that you read from Genesis to Revelation. The phrase consists of two titles and one personal name. The key phrase, in Christ, refers to the result of the new birth and appears 11 or 12 times in the letter. And Christos is the first title, which means anointed in the Greek. The context focuses upon the anointed of God, the Messiah, indicating his deity, appearing 42 times in the letter. And Jesus, Isusus, the name meaning Yahweh, is salvation, the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, the contraction of Jehovah Shua, Yahweh is salvation, indicating his humanity, to have God becoming man. Jesus Christ. Jesus, the human individual. Christ, God. Joined as one. Not a 50-50 bar, 100% God, 100% God. This appears 25 times in the letter. I'm sorry, 21 times. And then you have Lord, Kurios, and we're familiar with that. It's the second title referring to a person whom a person or thing belongs to, master, controller, he's the owner. And the context here again is for the Lord who owns us, who bought us. And the title can be used also for out of respect or honor or reverence. Um, we really don't have that in the English, but in many other cultures you do. In, uh, in Spanish you also have, uh, Señor, si, Señor. 
You say, it's, yes, sir, but Señor is Lord, literally. And you say that sometimes respect in families to your father, be that, or, or um, an older man, or something like that. It, it's, it doesn't mean you're worshiping them, it's just a title for respect. And that appears 25 times in the, in the letter here. So the, the, the name, the titles, they're, they're, we've run into them over and over again. Again, all addressed to Jesus Christ. Now, the threefold phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, appears seven times in the letter. In chapter 1, verse 3, we saw that. Verse 17, 311, 14, 520, 623, and 24. Peter tells us the following. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope is in God. Foreordained before the foundation of the world. Who? Jesus Christ. Before the fall, before the creation, before everything else, God already decreed that his son would die for the sins of the world. You say, well, nothing ever happened. It wasn't there yet. Well, God's all-knowing, right? He can't learn nothing, right? And nothing can happen apart from his cause, right? <laughs> so, for you and I, that's difficult. That we blow a couple of fuses. For God, it's no big deal. So Isaiah says that he, t- he knows the end from the beginning. He says uh, to the gods of the, uh, of the world, he says, tell me a thing before they happen so when they happen, I can declare you God. From chapter 40 to the end, he does that over and over again. Nobody had picked, took a bump on it. Nobody at all. Now you have some pronosticators today that think they can tell you the future, all that. and It's all general stuff and most of the time they're wrong anyway. The, um, the test of a prophet in the Old Testament was 100% or they stone you to death. I don't think anybody will step on that qualification today. <laughs> now, the perfect timing of the plan of God is like the um, laws and seasons of nature. They can be trusted. Even though it's summer right now and we get out of here, it's probably still going to be pretty light. But you know that the moon's going to come out tonight. As sure as you're in this room. And tomorrow morning the sun's going to come up. And there's going to be summer, autumn, winter, spring, summer. There are absolute laws. Gravity, you go up in the balcony, you jump off, you're going to hit the ground. Every time. You're never going to go up. Never. That's the word of God. It is absolutely trustworthy and it will be fulfilled. Jesus said, not one joke, not one tittle shall fail from the word. Every word, every little marking will be fulfilled. The earthly conditions for God to fulfill the plan of salvation were all present. There were many languages, but at the time of Rome, there was only one language for the whole empire. Greek. You know what an advantage is? You know, America used to have only one language. And it wasn't Spanish. It was English. Okay? And having one language is very beneficial. Everybody has to comport to that communication skill. Number two, it's a lot cheaper when you're doing applications, brochures. You only have one language. When you go to the hospital, they only speak one language. When you go shopping, there's only one language. It's more efficient and it's cheaper. Okay? So there was one language, Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek. Second, Rome had paved the empire with roads, making travel possible for the common person and communication to run from one point to the other. And thirdly, there was a Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There was no war. So therefore, the roads were safe. People were not hindered from traveling. And when those three things, Galatians 4.4 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of, well, under a woman, under the law. With those combinations, the gospel just went all over the empire. 
didn't have to interpret the scriptures into any other language. That's it. Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness also, which is important. Three times Jesus was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin, as you know. Hebrews 4.15 tells us. The victory of Jesus over Satan proved that the first Adam did not have to fail or sin. But rather chose to sin. And that Jesus, the last Adam, was in every way like the first Adam. And did not give in to sin. 1 Corinthians 15.45 Now, you say, so what's so important about that? Very, very important. The temptation of Jesus had to have had the potential for him to fail. Listen carefully what I'm going to say. If the temptation of Jesus in the world, he was exactly like the first Adam. 100% God, 100% man, but Jesus never did anything as God. He did it as man, depending on the Father. Okay? And if there was no potential for failure, then there really was no testing or temptation. And therefore, there's really no victory, and God has snowed us. Which way you want it? He did not fail. But there had to have been a potential. Otherwise, he wasn't a representative of the first Adam. The Bible says he was. And there was a real test and a real victory. You can only be victorious if there's a chance of failure, right? When you're on a race and you're the only one running, they don't give you first place because, you know, you beat everybody. For you to compete, there's got to be a possibility of failure, right? First, second, third, fourth place. Simple. John 14, 30, Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you to his disciples for the ruler of this world is coming listen and he has nothing in me when he defeated him in the wilderness he defeated him on the cross he knocked all his teeth out Satan cannot touch him there's no sin in him he defeated him the eternal plan of God for salvation is available now to all sinners and the father sent the son and identified him as Emmanuel, God with us in Matthew one twenty three. Often people say, where does Jesus say he's God? It's all over the Bible. All over the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. God calls him God. God the Father calls him God. <laughs> According to the Old Testament. Just one of many. Jesus the Son made the payment for our sin. And the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, 2-6 tells us very clear. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made sin for us and knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And 1 John 2.2, 2, the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world. Peter preached at Pentecost that whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved, believing Jesus Christ had been delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, crucified, put to death, raised from the dead, and is at the right hand of the Father's glory. Acts 2, 23-39. That's what he preached. And so acknowledging that the Father crucified his son for me. And this plan was made before the foundation of the world. Nothing would stop it. Now, people can affect their own eternity. But they can't affect the prophecies of God. You can mess up your life, but your messed up life is not going to stop the Antichrist from coming. <laughs> or, the G- or the second coming to Jesus Christ, okay? So one does not affect the other. So the perfect timing of the plan of God was for salvation. Notice secondly in verse 12, we have the personal benefit in the plan of God for salvation. The Apostle Paul declared the believer has an ongoing love relationship with Jesus. Listen to his words. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Paul revealed the ongoing dependency of believers on Jesus. The phrase in whom is reflexive looking back to 
in Christ our Lord, in verse 11. Um, having heard the gospel and repented, be the Jew or Gentile, both being one in Christ. Resulting in the transformed life, no longer living habitually in enforced sin through the new divine nature that's been given to us in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. So when we hear the gospel, we respond, something happens. There is a complete opening up of our eyes to the reality of sin and what death really is, separation from God, and that Jesus is really God and that he's coming back again. And that now being justified by the atoning work of God, then I have access to God. My life is different. There is no change of person from verse 11 to 12. Jesus was sent by the Father and Jesus brings us to the Father. Notice Paul revealed the result of Jew and Gentile believers being in union with Christ as Savior and Lord. Both Jew and Gentiles can speak to God directly. You see, people always boast of who they know and who they can talk to. People always drop names and everything. The Jew used to exalt himself above the Gentile, but no longer. Because both of them here can speak to God directly now. One is not at a disadvantage from the other. Notice we have. It's an indicative present active. Ongoing. Once you're born again, you have access to God. You can barge in at three in the morning, right now, whenever you want. Now, when my grandkids come, and when my kids were little, they would just run in and not, not, knock on the door. They just come in. I'm their dad. My grandkids do the same thing. But some of you don't do that. Because <laughs> there's a difference, right? But in Christ Jesus, we all have access to God. Anytime. I can pray for you. You can pray for me. We can pray together. But none of us have a closer access or more accessible opportunity for God from the other. God looks at us all the same. The word boldness means freedom of speech, being unreserved, frank, and telling all without concealment. You go before God, you tell him how you're feeling, you tell him what's going on, you tell him what you can't handle, you tell him what's going on in your heart. Not that he doesn't know it, but you're able to speak to him, you're able to pour out your heart to him, you're able to just sit and listen to him. Paul will use it again as he asked for prayer that he might Open his mouth boldly to make the, problem, the mystery of the gospel known at the end of chapter 6, verse 19. Same word. Peter used the word to address the crowd at Pentecost. He says, freely speak. That's the word. Liberty. To speak openly, frankly, unreserved. In the world... You're very cautious of what you say to certain people. When you don't know someone, you, everything's superficial, and rightly so. The more you know somebody, the closer they are to you, the more you open up to them because you know they're trustworthy. When coming to Christ, we know that he's absolutely trustworthy. I can tell him anything and he's not going to tell you anything. God doesn't backbite or gossip. And when I tell God anything, he doesn't say, huh, are you kidding me? I never shock him. I may grieve him. I may disappoint him. But I never shock him because he knows everything. Knowing that, then we don't play games with God. 
We don't go, go to God and say, well, you know, Lord, it's their fault. This and that. You know, we know it. We can, we, we can do that with each other. You know what I mean? Try to pass the buck and point fingers and convince a few people. But it doesn't work on God. <laughs> and we know that. Both Jew and Gentile can also come now directly to God. Not only speak to Him directly, but they can come to God directly. The word access means freedom of approach. So freedom of speech, to say what you need to, and now to approach. You're not afar off. You've drawn near. The idea is that in Christ we have been made right to have access to God the Father. Now remember, Keep the text here clear. It's to bring us to the Father. We've come through Jesus Christ, but Jesus came to bring us to the Father. In fact, when we pray, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven. Now, some people have a problem with that. You mean I can't pray straight to Jesus? You're not supposed to. The Bible says we're to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. We'll look at some verses later on where Jesus says, you ask the Father in my name. Chain of command. Simple. The word appears only one other time in the letter. It's in Ephesians 2.18. It says, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. There it is again. The whole goal of Jesus was to bring us to the Father and show us the Father. He tells Philip, have I been so long with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're no longer under the wrath of God being justified, Romans 5, 1 and 2. We can come right in. In fact, Galatians says we can call him Abba, Daddy. <laughs> so both Jew and Gentile have also... The peace of God. The word confidence. It means freedom of fear. From the word to persuade. This describes the manner in which the believer approaches and speaks to the father with confidence. No fear. When someone fears someone. They're very careful in their approach to him. And. They're afraid to say anything, right? Well, none of those things exist for us as believers. We have complete access, freedom of expressing ourselves with full confidence here. Since the word boldness and access are under the same article in the Greek, both emphasize the notion of bold access reinforced by fearless courage. You walk right in. We are free to express our needs, our doubts, our difficulties in obeying, confessing our sins, asking our petitions, all of this and more, unrestrained, unhindered, having Jesus as our intercessor. Notice the Apostle Paul in verse 12 declared the believer also has ongoing trust in Jesus. Not only the loving relationship that gives us that access, that, that, that confidence, but trust through faith in him, he says. Paul stated that both Jew and Gentile were to understand the need of abiding in Jesus to approach the father. A husband lives with a wife. A wife lives with a husband. Day after day. They have freedom to speak with each other. To approach one another. But if a husband or a wife. Separate or. Depart from each other for a long period of time. And things get tweaked. When they see each other again, six, seven, eight months or something, whatever reason, they, they, they don't have that confidence to speak freely 
or even to approach each other to give a hug maybe or a kiss. Because there's been a severing, there's been a distance, there's been a, a relocation to an extent. And so the believer abides in Jesus Christ. Paul stated that both the Jew and the Gentile were to understand the need of abiding in Jesus, to approach the Father. The Jew no longer approached God on the basis of law that Moses had given to establish their own righteousness or to exalt himself above the Gentiles. And the Gentile no longer approached God on the basis of their many gods and religions, knowing that pagan beliefs were contrary to the word of God and knowing their pagan beliefs were offensive to God. And so many of us, when we came to the Lord, wherever we came from, um, at least I did, when I started reading the Bible, I just started seeing clearly of the dumb things I used to do as a Catholic, the things I used to pray and how I used to worship God. And I just chucked them out because the Word of God is a sifter. Because some of those things are offensive to God. Idols are offensive to God. He hates them with perfect hatred. The doctrine of Nicolaitans, the, the conquering over the laity, a hierarchy of priests and carnals that supposedly are closer to God than you. They have more authority and power than you. Not so. Notice Paul stated that both Jew and Gentile approached the Father the same way they got saved. You ready for it? Through faith in Him. <laughs> there He is again, Him, Jesus Christ. The word through is, indicates the means or the grounds or the reason by which something is or is not done. If a person does not believe in Jesus, nothing can bring about their union of oneness with the Father. And yet, how many people say, I know God. I pray to God all the time. But if you don't come through the Son, you, you, you don't have the Father. It's impossible. If a person does not believe what the Bible says about Jesus... No claim can be made about knowing God the Father. John 3.36 says, He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. And the wrath of God abides in him. So you, you, you can get the Father through the Son, but if you reject the Son, you can't have the Father, and you certainly don't have the Son. The channel is the Son to get to the Father. There is no other channel apart from Jesus that can bring sinful man to the Father. The word faith, as you know, means conviction of the truth of any, any belief in the New Testament of conviction or belief, respecting man's relationship to God or divine things, generally with the included idea of trust and um, holy fervor born of faith and joined together. So what we believe is faith is going to direct me back to the Word of God. It's going to come from the Scriptures. So faith is not an emotion, it's not a feeling, it's not just, you know, mind over matter, it's not just believing and, and repeating enough. No, faith means that I believe the revelation of God. When God says, He is my son, I made him sin, I struck him dead for your sins, I raised him from the dead for the payment of your sin, and he's sitting at my right hand, uh, uh, the, my right hand. and if you call upon him, believe that, your sins can be forgiven. That is faith. If I believe that, I'm believing what God revealed about salvation. I didn't make it up. That's biblical faith. Often people say, well, you know, I have faith. Faith in what? What's your faith based on? Religion? Emotions? If it's not based on the Word of God, it's, it's foolishness. It's not faith. It starts with the same letter, but there's a big difference. This faith joins, or this faith points to what is revealed about Jesus in the scripture. Faith in him. Believing Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate son. Fully God, fully man. The savior of the world. Believing Jesus alone is our advocate and an intercessor to the father. No one else. 
And so Paul cannot say this enough through the epistle. You think he's already told us enough. <laughs> he can't get over Jesus. This is, to us, we're so used to it. When Paul is preaching and teaching this, this is mind-blowing. Prior to this, Gentiles couldn't approach God. God created them just to kindle the fires of hell, the Jews thought. A Jew would not go into a Gentile's home. You remember the book of Acts when Peter, when God, he was up there in Joppa, and God says, you know, I'll take, kill, and eat. Now, so, Lord, I've never eaten anything clean or uncommon. He says, don't you ever call anything common that I have cleansed. And he was given the vision to go to the house of Cornelius. The gospel is going to preach to the Gentiles are coming in. Radical. To us, we're used to it. When he's sharing this, insane. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, that forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves a gift to God. Ephesians 2, 8. Ephesians 2, 13. And that he might reconcile them both in God and one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity or hostility between Jew and Gentile. Wow. Ephesians 2, 18. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father, both Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 3, 9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. One more, 317. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. It's in, by, through, in whom, all Jesus Christ. No one else. When there is love and trust in a marriage relationship, it is based on ongoing confessed sin and forgiveness, resulting in unrestrained and unhindered communication with each other. When there is no confession of sin there's a hindrance to the relationship there's resentment that can turn to bitterness there's animosity there's silence rather than words and so that obedience in our relationship to Jesus Christ over to our marriages it's a parallel as we'll see when we get to chapter 5 Christ in the church and a man to his wife. Jesus came to direct sinners and saints to the Father. Understand that very clearly. Paul goes out of his way to make the distinction between them. Jesus told his disciples, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. He says, In that day you'll ask me nothing. Now, when he was on earth, they asked him things, right? He says, in that day when I'm with the Father, you ask me nothing. You ask the Father in my name. Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to the Father or your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in the will reward you openly. Mark eleven twenty five. Again, Jesus said, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So for me to have an open line, I have to make sure that I forgive as I have been forgiven. Otherwise, it's like you getting on your cell phone and you're driving through and you go through a hole and you drop that guy like a bad habit. You're not going to talk to that person until you get hooked back up. And that's what happens. I don't have any access to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ when I'm not right with other people. I'm to do everything that's in my power 
to stay right, to do what's right. If they are not willing to get right, then I've done all that I'm necessary. God will honor that. So I've got to make sure I do everything as possible on my part. And God will take care of the rest. Hebrews says and puts it this way. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Access any time. You go home, something happens, critical, you receive a call, you go right before the throne of grace to pray. Anytime. You get up in the middle of the night, you have a horrible pain in your gut, you can go before the throne of God right away. Because you've already come to Christ so you have a living, loving relationship with Him. And you keep that relationship fresh, alive, to be able to have access anytime you want. Hebrews ten nineteen through 22 puts it this way. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Once again, it's talking about staying right with God, keeping those lines, those lines clear and open in case we have to talk to Him. This is the personal benefit in the plan of God for salvation in ongoing fellowship. Day and night. Every day of our life. Notice thirdly here, verse 13, the proper perception about the plan of God through salvation. The Apostle Paul declared that he did not want the believers to be discouraged over his sufferings. Now, he's the one in jail, <laughs> okay? He should be discouraged, but he's not. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you. Paul, in this verse, has come to the end of the two things he wanted the Ephesians to know that went from verse 1 to 13. Verse 1 through 7, the information about his call and enabling as the messenger of the gospel. And secondly, the information about Jew and Gentile being one in Christ as his ministry of the gospel in verse 8 through 13. He comes to the end of it. Paul recalled was to break out in prayer in verse 1 of chapter 3, but was redirected by the Holy Spirit in verse 1. He said, for this reason, in verse 1, he says in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he was going to do in verse 1 to pray, but the Holy Spirit redirected him, now he picks up his prayer beginning in verse 14. Paul now asks the Ephesians to not be discouraged at the tribulations that he was experiencing. Paul usually stated the word, therefore, as a concluding word of a section, the sum total of everything that precedes it. In fact, it's used like that three times before this passage. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15 says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and love for all the saints. It's the conclusion of what precedes. Also in chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 19, you find it also. It's a concluding thing. But instead here, Paul uses the word therefore to point back to his imprisonment at the present time. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, verse 1. So the tribulation he's speaking about points back to verse 1. We need, we, as we noted before in our study of verse 1, Paul saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, never of Rome. 
He never declared himself a prisoner of Rome, always a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was on assignment, if you will. He will say it again, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling, in chapter 4, verse 1, with which you were called. That's how he's going to begin our walk in love. Notice Paul told the Ephesians to not be discouraged over his imprisonment. He expresses desire by the word ask. It means to beg or to plead. He expresses concern. Do not lose heart, meaning to faint or be weary. It's found five of the times in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, regarding prayer, pray that you faint not. Chapter 4, verse 1, also, uh, knowing the ministry we have, we do not faint. And then also, or be weary, verse 16, and then Galatians 6, 9, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, those six times. Now, notice he expresses condition. The word tribulations, it means oppressing together, crushing pressure, affliction, or distress. Paul was told by Jesus that he was going to suffer many things for his name's sake, if you remember, in Acts 9, 16. Paul told the Philippians his imprisonment was by God's appointment for the furtherance of the gospel in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. He says, what does it matter to me as long as Christ is preached? And some of the praetorium guards says, hi. <laughs> they come to the Lord. I'm here by assignment. God sent me to be in prison. You realize he wrote the four prison epistles from prison, right? <laughs> Otherwise, he had never, probably would have never been written. Paul indicated, notice the reason he was in prison for you on their behalf. He had preached the truth of the mystery of Christ that we're talking about here. Jew and Gentile 1, chapter 3, verse 2 through 6. That's why he's in jail. He was in prison for two years, accessory in the Mediterranean, as a political scapegoat, falsely charged by the Jews that he had brought Gentiles into the temple and taught against the law of Moses. And then now he's in Rome for two more years. You get that in Acts 22, Acts 24, 27, and 28, 30. He told this to the Colossians in Colossians 1.24. I now rejoice in my suffering for you. There it is again. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Remember, Ephesians and Colossians were written at the same time, so they're real similar. But here he says, for the sake of his body, the afflictions of Christ. Is Paul saying that he is finishing the atonement that Christ didn't finish? Of course not. What he's saying is, since Jesus Christ is no longer present on earth, and only his children are here, rather than persecuting Jesus because he's not here, they persecute us. We carry on the persecution of Christ because we are identified with him and the world identifies with him, us with him, and therefore we're persecuted. If you look at what's going on in the United States right now, there's open persecution to Christians. Not violent yet, but certainly in every other way. Conservatives, veterans, and Christians, and patriots. <laughs> Those are the enemies in America today, on the hit list of Washington, D.C. Amazing. What the American church hasn't or has failed to remember is the church has always suffered. The new church of today, the new Christian church, teaches nothing on suffering. It's all positive things. It's all how we can be happy. How we can just help each other and how we can just get along and how we can just do activities and everything else. I don't see that in the New Testament at all. <laughs> when I read the New Testament, I see pain, persecution, affliction. When I look to the church around the world through history, that's what I see. 
for whatever reason, God has allowed us not to be persecuted so far. But it's deception to think that this is the rule of the church. It is not. Notice the Apostle Paul declared his imprisonment was for the benefit, not only their behalf, but for the benefit of others, which is your glory, he says. Paul has used the word glory for God in the epistle. Doxa, seven times. And when it's used for God, it means his magnificence, his excellence, his dignity, his majesty. You find it in Ephesians 1, 6, 12, 14, 17, and 18. And then chapter 3, verse 16 and 21. The glory of God. The splendor, the majesty, the aweness of God. This is the only time that he uses it for man in this letter. One time. What does it mean? Paul is using the word glory for the outcome of the mystery previously hidden, but now made known that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Paul is in jail, and it's good that he's in jail because it was because he was preaching the gospel of Jew and Gentile being one. This was good and beneficial for the Ephesians and for all who heard the gospel message. The removal of hostility between Jew and Gentile. The removal of boasting between Jew and Gentile. The removal of all religious distinctions between Jew and Gentile. The removal of all cultural differences between Jew and Gentile. All those things hindered the oneness of the body. Now they're removed through Christ Jesus. This was good and of a great benefit to distinguish Christianity from Judaism. Christianity was not an extension and is not an extension of Judaism. I don't understand some Christians why they start fellowshipping in Jewish synagogues or messianic fellowships. There's no such thing in the New Testament. <laughs> Jews should fellowship with the church <laughs> that are born again, not to have a separate fellowship. That's segregating. <laughs> That's not the body of Christ. All those things of the Old Testament, they're all shadows of things to come. The fulfillment, the image is Christ. I don't need to know the Jewish stuff. I don't need to fulfill any of that stuff. I don't need to keep Sabbath or any of that stuff. Do you want the tree or you want the shadow? Which one do you want? I'll take the tree. The real thing. You and I have personally been incredibly encouraged spiritually and strengthened as we have seen and heard the Iranian Christians suffer in their imprisonment as we get updates every week. As they're bold enough to preach Christ and go to jail, it causes you and I to reflect on the reality of the church and the world we live in. And we pray for them. And we pray to God that we would be faithful as they and as bold as they and we pray that God protect them and keep them and use them. So what we're reading about here in Ephesians is still going on today, right? <laughs> Paul was in prison. The Lord Jesus was very clear about the suffering of Christians for his name's sake. In John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 16:33 of John, In the world you shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. 
Jesus gave a key for not losing heart. Luke 8, 1, 18, 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, faint, be discouraged. Reverse it. You faint, you're discouraged because you don't pray. It's kind of sad that we say, well, it's a, it's a national day of prayer. It should be every day. This nation needs prayer every day. Wow, we're going to take one day to pray? <laughs> we don't understand prayer, and we don't understand the nature of the world, and we don't understand the nature of the church. And we don't understand the seriousness of the spiritual mess we're in. <laughs> pray. Paul encourages the believer in tribulations and sufferings by being examples of Christ for the sake of others. Listen to Romans 5, 3 through 5. He says that not only that, but we also glorify or glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. So we're able to do what we do because we yield to the Spirit of God and we trust Christ for these things. He tells Timothy, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, the Jew, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, Paul says they're Jews, they get born again, they come into the church. Simple. Not the reverse. He says to the Corinthians, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if you are afflicted, it is for, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Second Corinthians 1, 5 through 6. So the sufferings that you go through, God will use that for you to comfort others. So, the things that we go through, it's not just for ourselves, but I can't, I've got to be first a partaker. I can't give what I don't have. It's simple. He says, for we are to God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and of, um, among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other, we're aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? <laughs> You preach Christ to some people, and they hate you. Oh, tell me I'm going to go to hell. Who do you think you are? You're a aroma of death to them. But those that open their heart, you're an aroma of life to them. They can't thank you enough. Hmm. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Second Corinthians 4.1 Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For a light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Wow. Paul was thick skinned. <laughs> And let us now grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Galatians 6, 9. Listen to Paul. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if you, if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Second, First Peter 2, 19-21. Jesus suffered for you and me. He didn't suffer for himself. He could have very easily got off that cross. He did not. The proper perspective about the plan of God through salvation was 
willing to suffer for the sake of others. We don't like to suffer. I don't like to suffer. <laughs> and yet God is sufficient for all these things. The ministry of the gospel for Paul is characterized by the perfect timing of the plan of God for salvation. It was before time began. The personal benefit in the plan of God for salvation is for ongoing fellowship. And the proper perspective about the plan of God for salvation was willing to suffer for the sake of others. When someone's in jail for the gospel and they're living it, you hear and you listen a little differently than someone who's just pontificating over a pulpit. <laughs> it makes all the difference in the world. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for just your grace, Lord. We pray you continue to deal with us and teach us, Lord. And we thank you for just the many servants you have come to this church, Lord, and how they give of themselves. And, and Father, just for how they trust you and believe you and they uh, grow in your word, Lord. We pray tonight, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, you would speak to their hearts, they would repent of their sins. Call on your name, Lord. And for those that are over the internet, Lord, did you speak to them? As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you don't know Christ, then God would have you to repent tonight. A prayer is what's needed, and that's your prayer to him, not to us. As you believe that Jesus, God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead. If this is your choice, you can say this prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.